0: Yes, it's great. Hey, uh, we're kicking off today reminding you that each month we've been collecting some food for the food bank, and you guys have been doing incredibly well in blessing the food bank. You did crackers last month. In fact, crackers were still coming in this week. Thank you so much for that. That was excellent. Three things this month. We've got uh, dried beans of any kind, okay? Louisiana, right? Dried beans of any kind, Black beans, red beans, whatever it is that you like, I am sure that they'll be happy to get that. Uh, what goes with that? Rice, okay? Rice, and so that's uh, something that you can get for them. I don't know, and I didn't ask, so I'm going to ask now. You don't need the really big bags of rice. You need the kind of portable bags, the little bags. I know it's a bargain to get like the 90-pound bag, Okay? The one you have to hire somebody to bring it in for you. But we need the smaller bags because we're packing these to go with folks. So it's important that we can get the smaller bags. And uh, and also along with that is uh, pasta. Not pasta bart, but pasta. Okay? So uh, any kind of pasta would be great. You can get this kind or the little boxed kind. I know that they will appreciate it again, getting them in the smaller packages so that they can pack it. You are blessing the entire area and community, and I'm really thankful for what you're doing. I also want to thank you for your generosity. I talk often with folks about you as a congregation and your personal generosity to the Lord, to each other, to the community, and to global missions. I've never known a group of people who were so fundamentally deep down generous. I love the quote from Dr. Johnny Hunt, pastor of First Baptist Church of Woodstock. He has a way of saying things that are kind of a little bit sideways. He said, you don't have to be rich to be generous, you have to be generous to be generous. Alright, that's just it. And I have never known any group of folks as generous as our folks. You've been giving generously to so many things. You have been sponsoring youth. Unbelievable the kind of response we get when we do the sponsorships with our youth. I'm just amazed at that. You have been giving generously to the budget. I am thanking God for meeting our needs and how you've been giving. Now, we're rolling into the summer and every church deals with this thing and it's called the summer slump because some folks think of church like movie attendance. I only pay if I go watch the movie. Uh, we want to remind you that during the summer we have some of our largest outgoing expenses because of the ministries like vacation Bible school, youth camp, children's camp, ministry in Ecuador, and other things that we do as a church family. So I just want to encourage you, during the summer, just continue what you're already doing, because you're really doing incredible, and I'm thanking God. We've been talking to you about rolling out to you some plans for paying off our church's debt and for giving a good outlook of what the needs ahead are. We've slowed that process down just a little bit because of two recent hires. We just brought Richard in, and he is... Y'all give Richard a hand. Man, he is knocking it out. All right, it has been great. I I love coming in in the morning and seeing the light on in that office and going, yes. So we're really blessed. And he has been such an encouragement to our staff, to our church. And I'm also thanking God for Clint Verdon, who has been hired as our new custodial supervisor. You need to give a hand to him, too. He's doing a great job. So I'm really thankful. But what we're doing with both of those guys on board, we're just going back through everything on the campus. We're going top to bottom, front to back, up to down, making sure that we have a really good view of where we are campus-wide, and we're breaking our needs into three categories. The first category is must. There are some things on our campus we must do. Our campus is aging, and some things simply must be fixed. Second category is need to. They're not things that immediately have to be done, but they really need to be done. And we're putting that together. And then the third category is want to. There are some things we would like to do, we want to do on our campus to improve it, to make it better serve you, better serve the community, better, of course, in all of that, to serve the Lord. So... Give us a little more time to get all that together, roll that out to you, and let you see it as we prepare to work on that together. We're really thankful for you. You saw all the folks come down for the VBS workers. This is a major league undertaking. And I'll tell you what, there's not many days of the week that I'm not impressed with Wendy Blocker. She encourages me in her ministry. Yeah, go ahead. And... Uh, She's got a sidekick and I'm not talking about Wayne. She's got a sidekick, Casey Warren, who has been absolutely a jewel in our ministry as well. And so, I'm just glad to be here. Y'all glad to be here? I'm just glad to be here. So, let's open God's word together. How many of you are familiar with the show Dirty Jobs, Mike Rowe? Give me a hand if we all know what that's about. Okay, great show. Very interesting show. Uh, I, I, I like seeing that. We typically watch it when we're on vacation. We're staying with somebody's got cable and, uh, or staying somewhere that's got cable. And I like to watch that. It's always interesting to me. What I love is how he just jumps into it. Whatever it is, he just jumps into. And some of those things are pretty gross. I'm not going to gross you out by talking about some of them, but if you've watched it, you've probably been like me, kind of holding your stomach just a little bit going, ooh, I don't know if I could do that one. I'm not sure. And so, the dirty jobs thing is... Uh... Just It's kind of real popular now. In fact, there's been a little uh, row between Mike Rowe and a group called Nordstrom that makes clothes over the fact they re- produced some $495 blue jeans that make it look like you've got a dirty job when you don't. And so there was a little conflict because he said, man, that's just crazy. will not you just come and actually get dirty with us? I've not had many dirty jobs. I think the hardest things for me were things like learning to change diapers. Guys, you with me there on that one? That one was a dirty job for me. I had a hard time. I'm a gagger, okay? I'm that guy that's going, and it's kind of hard for me. Uh, but the worst dirty job that I ever had was when I worked at McDonald's. I did two stints at McDonald's, one for, uh I don't know, it's probably close to a year and a half uh, when I was 16 and 17, And then I did another stint uh, during college where I went back and worked at McDonald's again. And when I worked in the grill, we had to, the grills were built differently than they are today, but we had to empty the grease trap. Now we worked at one of the busiest McDonald's in the United States. This was over on South Cobb Drive near Cumberland Mall, which was one of the first mega malls in the South. And South Cobb Drive, we just constantly worked at that McDonald's. It was can to can when it was on. And we had a great time. And I worked with a guy named Mitch and we worked the grill and we had a ball back there. We learned the art of cooking those hamburgers about as fast as they can be cooked. and. The thing is, is between every set of hamburgers, there's all that grease and all those leftover pieces of hamburger. And so you take this big scraper between every time and you scrape that and then you scrape it sideways and there's this, there's this narrow, very deep trap over on the side. It's called a grease trap. And so every day you're, you're just emptying that over there and it sits all day at room temperature. Okay? with all that leftover hamburger meat and whatever else you might have dropped in there in the process. And um, and then you have to empty those things after a couple of days. And it is the most gross thing I've ever done in my life. I don't want to mess you up by telling you about it, but I had a really hard time every time we ever had to empty those grease traps. And it was the dirtiest of the dirty jobs that I ever had to do. And it was a gagger. It was terrible. Well, When we think about dirty jobs, no dirty job has ever been dirtier than God putting on flesh and blood and moving in among sinners. The dirtiest of the dirty jobs that's ever occurred is when the perfectly holy, sinless, glorious, He who cannot gaze upon sin took on flesh and blood and entered into our dirty, filthy situation, and began to walk among us, and then came to the moment of temptation. Now, he was tempted many, many times previously and afterward, but there was a particular moment of temptation that Jesus helps us understand his love for sinners. So what is Jesus doing? Well, the first thing that he is trying to do is he wants us to know God. So he's showing up and he's saying something like this to his disciples. Have you been with me this long and not seen who I am? A oh, Father, show us the Father. Jesus, show us the Father. Have you not been with me? This long and not seen, that I am in the Father, the Father is in me. Jesus wanted us to know God. Why? Because that's our greatest need. We were estranged from God in the Garden of Eden, lost our intimate knowledge of Him, and so God has set about through the rest of human history, bringing us to know Him accurately, personally, savingly intimately eternally he's using the means of creation he's using the conscience he has given us he's using the bible he is using christ himself and he's using the church so that he may be known because the greatest need any human being has is to know god and the greatest privilege we'll ever have is to know god But He wants us, as we come to know Him, to be conformed to His likeness. So we begin to grow to be like Him. When we know Him personally and savingly and accurately and intimately and have the privilege of headed toward knowing Him eternally, we begin to grow in His likeness. That is what occurs by knowing Him. We're being restored into the fullness of the image of God. As Adam was created, we are now being recreated in Christ to be like Jesus, who is the perfect image of God. But we don't stop there because to grow in His likeness is to be given the privilege of showing other people what He's really like. You watched the news last night. You saw what happened in London. There are some people who have a deranged view of what God is like. And they're passionate about it. They're passionate enough to to take what their view of God is and to use it for the slaughter of other human beings. They have a warped, twisted view of God. You have been given in Christ the beautiful, incredible, picture of what God is like so that you may show Him to others. In fact, Peter says that you were given this salvation in order that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness, where those people are, into His glorious light. You have the privilege as a Christian to know Him, to grow in His likeness. And then you have the mission. To show what he is like to other human beings. That's your job. It's my job. That's our task. Well Jesus is doing this in the context Of a ministry to sinners. Who are the sinners? We talked about this over the last several weeks. A class of people. Irreligious, irreverent, immoral, impure, indigent, infirm, physically impaired. We also learned that they are the people who externally demonstrate what we are all internally capable of or culpable for. We ask the question, why is Jesus eating and drinking with them? Well, He's welcoming them. He's affirming them. And he's inviting them into a personal relationship. This is nowhere better demonstrated than in the incarnation and temptation of Jesus Christ himself. God in Christ allows something to happen to him that could not otherwise happen to him. Let's study that. Number one, in Jesus, and notably in Jesus' temptation, God expresses His condescending love for sinners. His condescending. Now, we typically use the word condescending in a, a, a bad way. We'll say something like this. Hey, don't use that condescending tone with me. Because we don't like people thinking they're above us that they might talk down to us. Right? You know what I'm talking about? But listen, God is above us. And in order for him to relate to us, he condescends. What does condescend mean? Well, we've got a little definition here to sink willingly to equal terms with inferiors. That's what he did. He came and he put on flesh and blood. Listen in Hebrews chapter 4. Jump over there where Andrew read. Listen. What happens there? Verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in... How many things? (laughs) you thought that through? In your little mind? I've told you before... My mind's like a sack of cats. Okay? Well, Tom Scott, he'll send me a text every now and then and say, Meow. (laughs) Making fun of me and my old sack of cats. Listen, Jesus understands your sack of cats. Because He's been tempted. And how many things? As we are. All things I don't know what your thing is, but Jesus understands. In fact, it says that He is sympathetic with your particular weakness. I know my particular weaknesses. The idea that Jesus could sympathize with that is scary to me. And greatly encouraging. Whatever your bent Weakness, Jesus has been tempted in all things. You see, Satan and all of his host, humanity and all of its worst, came at Jesus from every angle, every direction, working, trying to find an angle, a leverage, a tool to bring him into sin. And so Jesus... Can sympathize with your weakness. God, in Jesus, and notably in Jesus' temptation, expresses his condescending love for sinners by entering our dirty job. What I love about the micro show when he just jumps in beside the people and he just goes to work and they start explaining what's got to be done, and he'll shake his head sometimes, but he just gets right on into it. sometimes he'll be down in some kind of hole digging something out, and all of a sudden he'll pop his head out of that hole, and the cameraman's got him, he's got this stuff all over him. Listen, I think Jesus has popped up in my life with a lot of my stuff all over him. He who knew no sin became, dirty job, sin. He never sinned. But he was immersed, submersed. This is Jesus. He sympathizes by way of God's condescension to Where you are, who you are, what you are. Jesus loves sinners. And so in his temptation, he has sunk willingly to equal terms with inferiors. He never became a sinning person, but he became sin. And so here we have this beautiful picture in verse 13. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. In other words, He knows not only your weakness, He knows how you can have victory. He knows how to overcome. We're going to get to that in a second. And so here, Jesus condescending... That's why he says then, in verse 16, let us therefore draw near with confidence. You are drawing near to a high priest who gets it. Now, I know you don't think people get it. And you know what? People don't. Sometimes you say, I just don't think my spouse gets it. I don't think my child gets it. I don't think my parents get it. I don't think my friends get it. I don't think my church gets it. Listen, Jesus gets it. He he gets it. Undoubtedly, totally, absolutely, he gets it. That's why you can pull up close to Jesus with confidence. You see, what Satan wants you to think is, you need to clean up your dirty job before you go to Jesus. That's not how it works, because no one can clean you but Jesus. Jesus. What can wash away my sin? You know the answer, don't you? Say it! Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So if you're out there trying to get whatever it is off of you, you are wasting your time. So you can boldly, with confidence, walk right up to this King who sits at the right hand of God the Father and that King in all of His majesty, purity, holiness, awesomeness will condescend right to you and sympathize with your weakness. So you can boldly go to the throne of grace to receive grace and mercy to help us win in our time of need which for me it's, what time is it not? Second, I could camp there for a month. Second, in Jesus, God experiences the conflict of temptation that He could not otherwise know. How do I know that? Well, come, come with me real quick to James one thirteen. James 1:13 very important passage in understanding the importance of the incarnation and Christ's temptation 1:13 book of James says let no one say when he is tempted i'm being tempted by god for god cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone so here is a very clear statement that god satan can't parade to God's throne in heaven, and tempt Him with anything. Because in this glorious state, He has no temptability. But in order to sympathize with you, in order to understand you, He took on your flesh and blood. So He gets it. You remember a while back when we were preaching on the Incarnation, I showed that little video clip of the uh, Iron Man where they have the suitcase armor. And there's this guy named Lash who's got these whips that give these uh, powerful electronic charges, shocking. uh, and, And so... He's putting a whooping on everybody and, and Iron Man has to put his outfit on and he grabs that outfit in the suitcase and puts it on. and has all that way that it comes on to him that looks so cool in the movies and all that CGI graphic stuff going on. And all of a sudden he's got this protection on him in order that he not have to feel the lashes of the whip that this guy has because he becomes kind of impervious to that. You see, the opposite is true of God. God was impervious to temptation. God was impervious to what you actually feel like and experience in being temptable. He was impervious to the pain of the cross. So in order to do that, He put on flesh and blood. Read it in in Hebrews 2. It's there. He says it so... It's just perfectly stated. Verse 14, Hebrews 2. Since the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same. That through death, what? He couldn't die otherwise without a body. So he takes on a diable body. And he says that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. But jump all the way down to verse seventeen. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren. <laughs> Remember, I said that Jesus wants God wants us to know Him intimately. Jesus, in chapter two, it says He's not ashamed to call you His sibling. You ever had a sibling that you just didn't want to own up to? You go to some kind of gathering and you got this sibling, and you, is that your brother? It's like, oh yeah, that your sister. Yeah, Jesus. When they say, hey, hey, is that your brother Bart? Jesus says, yeah. He's my brother. He says, he's not ashamed to be called my brother. And it says here, he had to be made like his brethren in how many things? How many? That's that temptation thing. That's that weakness understanding thing. Jesus understands you. If nobody else gets you, Jesus gets you. There's an old spiritual came down through the slave years. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. He knows. Look at what he says in verse 17. He had to be made like his brethren in all things that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered. Read that last phrase. He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. You know what Jesus is? He is your first responder. When you dial spiritual 911, Jesus is the first responder. He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So here, God is experiencing the conflict of temptation that He could not otherwise know than to become flesh and blood like His brethren and to be tempted in all things and to be made like them in all things, that He might be a merciful and faithful high priest and that He might do this. Come running to your aid. Spiritual 911. Jesus is your first responder. He's the first one on the scene. No matter how, no matter how gruesome the scene, Jesus is the first one on the scene of his brothers and sisters. So here, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. I just love that. Okay, so let's go to number three. Because I only have three minutes left and you know how that's working. Okay. Come with me to to, to Matthew. and I'm going to do this reasonably quickly. We're going to come back to it and flesh it out a little bit better later. So number three, in Jesus, God explains the capability of overcoming temptation. Jesus wasn't just overcoming for Himself. He was also overcoming for you. And He was giving something to you in His death, burial, resurrection, in your salvation, in His present intercession at the right hand of God, in the presence of the Holy Spirit in you, that He exemplifies here that you can learn and apply so that when the temptation comes to you, you can function differently than an unbeliever. Fundamentally differently than an unbeliever. And so He kind of lays it out here. In the temptation... Let me just give you an overarching picture. All of the temptations are about shortcuts. Shortcuts to satisfaction. Shortcuts to glory. Shortcuts to, to reigning over and having authority. All of them are about shortcuts. It's about Satan stepping in and in Jesus' flesh offering a shortcut to what God the Father has set for him will provide for him. It's about shortcuts. It's about the easy path, the quick way. And it's all about temporal shortcuts. It's not just about shortcuts, but it's shortcuts that only have temporal rewards. And this is important because almost every temptation we ever face is about a shortcut to a temporal reward. Almost every temptation we face is about a shortcut to a temporal reward. Some things may fall outside of that, but most of our day-to-day is about that. Now, I would love to camp on this, and I think I will in a few weeks really camp on all of the temptations and the depth of them, But what I want to take you to is how did Jesus handle it? When the shortcuts were offered, how did Jesus handle the shortcuts? And why are his answers important to you and I when we're tempted? So let's jump in to the temptations. The first temptation, verse 3, the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God. Now, here's the deal. He's 40 days without food. Whatever you would feel like at 40 days without food is what Jesus is feeling like. He gets no pass here. Jesus didn't get sort of up. Okay, you're the Son of God. We're going to give you like the supernatural extra thing here. And therefore, you won't really feel what it's like to be hungry for 40 days. Now, whatever you and I would feel at 40 days is where he's at. Might be delirium. Might be just your body starting to consume the protein of the muscles, the protein of the uh, some of the organs. Your body's starting to break down. At forty days, starting to eat itself. A lot of things are going on. This is how Jesus feels. Whatever it is, that's how he feels. So at those into those forty days, bam, the tempter shows up and says, "If you are the son of God," so he kind of puts things into question. He says, "If you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread." In other words, you, you're self-sufficient. You don't have to depend. You can do this yourself. There's this shortcut where something that is a normal thing becomes an ultimate thing. It's normal to be hungry. It's normal to want food. It's normal to eat. But in getting him at this angle, what he's trying to say to Jesus is, you've got to prove yourself, man. If you're really who you say you are, you've got to prove yourself. Use this shortcut to prove yourself and feed yourself. And so Jesus is not going to let a normal thing become an ultimate thing. And so he tells what his defense is. Now, when I was growing up, and I've shared this with you before, what I was taught was, if you will memorize enough scripture, you'll get through all your temptations. It didn't take me long to realize that didn't work. No magic mantra of words that you whoop out in the moment of temptation is going to be the key to your success. Now, am I against Scripture memory? No, because Scripture memory has saved me from a lot of things. But there's something beneath the Scripture memory that's more important than the intellectual comprehension. Remember the Pharisees and scribes, they could call all that stuff up from memory. No, there's something else being revealed. You see, Satan comes in and what he's doing is he's using weakness as leverage. For the first time in Jesus' life, God knows what it's like to be dependent on bread and water to survive. In all of God's existence from all of eternity, God never didn't depend upon anything. But in this moment, in Christ, in a human body, Jesus has to be dependent upon a created thing for life. So He knows what it's like. And so here He is in the midst of this temptation. And food is not a bad thing in itself. And so Satan is going to use the leverage of normal thing called hunger. He's going to use the leverage to try to use that leverage to get Jesus off of his faith, off of his dependence upon his Father, and into a trap. And so he uses the leverage of hunger. And here's what Jesus says. He says, Satan... That leverage doesn't work because fundamentally I'm not hungry. What do you mean? He said, I've not been surviving out here in this desert or in my life by natural means. I am so full and satisfied with my Father's Word that you have no leverage with me right now. Because my depth of spiritual satisfaction is so profound that it overcomes natural desires. Please hear this. Every one of us are here today with a bunch of natural desires. We're loaded with them. We've got them all over the place. And if there is not something stronger than natural desire, then we will be leveraged every minute of our life By an enemy who will use our natural desires to destroy us. That's the leverage he's after. And that's why you have to have a supernatural satisfaction that overcomes your natural desires. Jesus said, My dependence is not a bread dependence. It is the Word of My Father. What's He saying? He's saying that available to you as His follower, there is a satisfaction from God's Word, who is Christ Himself, that you can dine on every day and be filled in such a way that you no longer have to be leveraged by your natural desires. You no longer have to be mastered by those things. This is a power beyond comprehension. It gave Jesus the ability that after 40 days of eating nothing, to be able to say, I'm not hungry the way you think I'm hungry. So here's the first word I want to give you in your outline under this is, feed up and fill up. If you want to overcome temptation, you need to feed up and fill up on who God is in Christ to you, what He has done for you in Christ, and where through Christ He's going to take you. That's what needs to be the satisfying thing of your heart, is that daily you dive not into a devotional, but into the book and you dig into His Word, and you feast on who God is to you in Christ, what He has done for you in Christ, where He's taking you through Christ, and it will begin to remove the leverages that the enemy has been using against you all of your life. Jesus is offering this. Feed up, fill up, on who God is to you in Christ. Second. Listen to the second temptation. Then he took him into the holy city had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. He said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for he will give his angels charge concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, what's happening here is that what Satan is saying is, use God's promises as a means to your selfish ambitions. This is the essence of the prosperity gospel. Use God's promises as a means to your selfish ambitions. A shortcut. Jesus had said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. What's Jesus saying? Number two, later B, wise up. You cannot toy with God. Please, please. You can't play with God. He's not out there striking weird deals with you. You can't toy with him. Satan's always leveraging going, look, go ahead and do this, but because you're under grace, God's going to forgive you anyway. So just go ahead and do this because he's going to, he's got to forgive you. He's obligated to forgive you of these things. And then you start operating as if you're not going to answer to God. Wise up. You can't toy with God. He's not manipulatable. You can't turn Him and twist Him and tweak Him to be the way you want Him to be. He is! And therefore, He is not a means to your selfish ambitions. Or mine. We cannot toy with God. In fact, the Bible tells us not only to not toy with Him, it tells us to fear Him with a holy fear, a reverent awe, a trembling awe. And so the second thing is, is wise up. Jesus said, well, you don't toy with God. You don't go around jumping off of stuff quoting Scripture as if He's obligated to keep you safe. Don't toy with God. Third, Listen to the last temptation. We'll close up. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain showed him all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Hey, it's a shortcut. Jesus is going to get those, but Satan's saying, I'm going to give them to you now. I can give them to you right here, right now. Here's the deal. You fall down and worship me. I have a temporal authority over things. I can give them to you temporarily. And Jesus? No. No shortcuts. Let her see, look up. The key to you not being enamored with the stuff of this world is where you're going to put your focus on. The Bible is so clear about Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and then sat down at the right hand of the Father. What Satan wants from you is to keep your focus down on the things of this world. The stuff. The recognition, the acceptance, the goods, the securities of this world. He wants your eyes always almost blinded to the things above you. So that you go around with this kind of view of life that's always down here. That's what Satan is offering Jesus. Look at the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus says, no. And what is His answer? Worship. God, how do you and I get our how do how do we get our view up and off of these things? We worship God. I am not talking about what your favorite song is, whether or not they play it in church, whether or not the things go the way you want when we come together in corporate worship. The attitudes of corporate worship only reflect what we bring to them from the last six. Days. And you have a cruddy six day attitude, don't think we can fix you today. That's not our job. What is going to keep Satan from leveraging your lust for these temporal things? If you open God's Word every day and behold Him and worship Him and look at Him and ponder Him and meditate on Him and love Him and serve Him. That's going to lift your eyes. Turn your eyes on Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim. To remove Satan's leverage, fill up and feed up, wise up, and look up. God has done for you in Christ what you could not do for yourself. He has become you, He has become you. In all things like his brethren, tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin, he's become you, but he was as a substitute living before his father the way you should have lived, perfectly. He has become you on the cross. He was there what you deserved. He was there saying what you should have to say. My God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? That's what you should be saying. But because He did it in your place, He has the authority validated at the resurrection when He came back from the grave. He has the authority to look at you and say, My son, my daughter, my brother, my sister, your sins are forgiven. That alone is enough for us to want to fill up and feed up, wise up and look up. Let's pray. Father, there is no way to describe you. It's just impossible. But you have described yourself in Jesus. You've shown us what you're like. You are merciful, holy, just, gracious, condescending to know our experience yet rising above our experience in sinlessness. You have taken our place on the cross in Christ. You have redeemed us, forgiven us, set us on solid ground. Oh God, today, change us and let us enjoy in true worship who you are. What you have done where you're taking us because you are going to come and get us out of this mess. You're going to pull us from our dirty job into your glorious presence. Oh God, work in us today to believe this good news. Some of you are here today and this good news is new to you. Or you've heard it a long time but it's fresh to you today. You need Jesus. You need Him to climb down into your dirty job and to be with you and to be you. To take your place in life, take your place in death, and to give you Himself. You need Jesus. Would you like to receive Him today? If so, would you join me in asking Him to save you? Pray with me. God in heaven, I believe this news, that Jesus lived sinlessly in real flesh, that he understands me, sympathizes with me, that in that sinlessness, he went to the cross and he died the way I should die under your wrath and rejection. And I believe that he was raised from the dead. Because of this, I trust Jesus today. God, save me because I trust Jesus. I turn away from my sin and selfishness. And I turn to you alone as my Savior. If you prayed that this morning, from the depth of your heart in repentance and faith, the Bible says, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Some of you are here today, you're a believer, and I've struck a nerve. God struck a nerve. The Bible struck a nerve. Something struck a nerve today, and you need to deal with something. This would be a great day to settle it. By the way, when you come to Jesus, He understands. Would you come to Him today? Would you stand as God leads you? Would you come?